We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished players, authors, content creators, and improvers about their lives, their careers, and about ways that you might be able to improve your own chess game. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Adult Improver edition of Perpetual Chess. Before we introduce our guest, I have a few thrilling announcements for you guys. Okay, may- maybe they're not a- not that exciting, but I did have a few housekeeping items to catch you all up on. Number one, I've been blogging a little bit. I don't know how long it'll last, but in any event, I'm going to try to turn out at least some blogs this year, write about the podcast, write about my own to the extent I'm playing tournaments, which right now is a decent clip. We'll see if I can keep that up, see if I can keep the blogging up. But in any event, I'm blogging on chess.com and on Lee Chess. Uh, the, the posts are, are basically similar, so you can follow me on the platform of your choice. I'm at Benny Fischel, or that's my handle on chess.com, and Perpetual Chess on Lee Chess. Number two, for those of you who listen on Spotify, they finally have a sort of review feature, which is you can't, I don't believe, leave pros reviews, but you can give Perpetual Chess five stars, so it's much appreciated if you're able to do that. Uh, with that out of the way, let's introduce our guest. Uh, he is a very strong classical player and a blitz monster. He's got a chess.com blitz rating of 27-something. Um, he's also rated uh, nearly 2,400 USCF, and he gained nearly 200 of those points in his 20s, which as we discussed with uh, FM Peter Giannatos in the popular adult improver interview I did with him, those are a very hard 200 points to get. Uh, speaking from experience, I myself peaked over 2200 and fell back into the 2100s and definitely never approached those sort of gains uh, at that stage of life. So curious to hear about that, but also about his his blitz game because he continues to improve at blitz, uh, which not coincidentally, he has two young kids at home. So he's been focusing more on online play and we'll be discussing online play. Our guest Jeremy Kane is also the curriculum director for chess.com. So in addition to his own improvement work, he's responsible for the lessons feature and many other features on chess.com. He's also now an author. He recently released a book, which is called The Next to Last Mistake. I've uh, gone through the whole thing and really enjoyed it. It's about 
how to build resilience in chess and full of uh, pretty challenging puzzles. He was also a scholastic teacher at Silver Knights Academy. Shout out to Silver Knights in the D.C. area. Um, so he has a wide range of chess improvement knowledge for all ages and skill levels. And without further ado, we're excited to finally welcome him to the show. Uh, and I'm Jeremy Kane. Jeremy, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited as well. It's uh, one of the many long overdue interviews. I can only interview one person a week, but I'm super excited to uh, talk chess and chess improvement with you. Um, and again, you're a super strong player. Uh, I am to GM strength in, uh, in, in Blitz and probably in Classical as well. Um, harder to prove those things when you have kids at home and don't get <laughs> to play, but a strong player in any event. But before we get to sort of your uh, more geared to the intermediate to advanced player advice. Jeremy, since you have so much experience in the teaching realm, I thought maybe you could start by giving some advice to the many chess enthusiasts and chess.com users who say are rated below 1500, but are dedicated to improving. What do you think? Is there a way to give like general advice for how best to use one's chess uh, improvement time? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I think the important thing for anyone improving at chess is primarily just about keeping your brain active while you're doing it. So if you're watching videos, make sure you're actually pausing and trying to figure out what you would play if the author has a puzzle for you. Um, don't just sort of passively sit there and watch you know, Gotham Chess tell you about his last game. You want to figure out things for yourself to make sure you're actually learning and not just kind of being entertained by the TV. Um, and I'm also not super particular on what you're studying as long as you're thinking and learning things. Because if we tell all of these people to go study these dry endgames, memorize your Lucina positions, that's often going to be a recipe for them not to study at all. So obviously, you know, it's great, great to learn the Lucina position. It can be important, but What's important is that you're working on your chest, and if that means working on the areas you most enjoy, that's usually not a bad thing, especially for us if you're not a professional. Yeah, and and what's been what what do you enjoy most about chess, Jeremy? So I really love the competitive aspect. I think I'm more of a you know a sportsman with chess and less of a philosopher. Like I I do appreciate chess beauty when I see it. Um, but especially if you're playing fast time controls, it's a bit of a risk if you want to play that beautiful game and you spend half your time in one position. Most of the time, that's just going to result in you losing on time at the end of the game instead of actually accomplishing that beauty. Have you been reviewing my games, Jeremy? <laughs> I haven't, but it actually it happened in one of my Blitz games yesterday. So okay. it can come up. Um, yeah, that that's really good advice. And of course, it's kind of a theme from your book, this, the idea of sort of the practical side of chess resilience in particular. Um, so does that come naturally to you? Or is it something you you've worked on? And again, this might be more geared towards either online blitz, or, you know, at least faster online play this sort of uh, advice, although, you know, you can get low on time in classical games as well. That's definitely true. Um, so actually, one of the reasons I wrote the book is, at least when I started it a few years ago, it seemed like there were was a real gap in the chess literature in terms of talking about resiliency. And there were some books with how to defend a little bit, but there, most chess books are, you know, how to have your winning tactics, how to play these brilliant games. And most of our games just aren't that brilliant. We're just trying to kind of play practically the best we can. And... This book kind of tells you like, okay, you screwed up, you're probably worse, or maybe you've even played pretty well, but you still have to defend. It's a normal part of the game. And there didn't seem to be a lot about how to do it. Um, actually, I want to mention, give a shout out to uh, GM Smearden's book um, on chess swindles. is actually a great contribution that covered something that hadn't been talked about too much. Although I think his book and mine are a little distinct. He's more into... Really, like, you're totally lost. What tricks can you pull? And mine's mostly, you're in some trouble, but if you play really good moves, we don't necessarily have to rely on sort of psychological ploys to survive. Yeah, that's, uh, I believe it's called The Complete Chess Swindler by GM David Smirton. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, I think it won some awards. Uh, a, a good book in its own right. But yeah, I mean, I agree. It's been uh, underrepresented in the chess literature. Now, Jeremy, do you, do you feel like this is a particular strength of yours or was it just like something that in your wide range of experience, one of the topics you had knowledge of? I think it 
happens to be a strength of mine, and I'm not 100% sure where it came from. Again, there wasn't like much material to study, um, but maybe just stubbornness. Like I don't want to resign in a tough position. And I happen to have like a lot of my wins against the top rated people I've beaten in classical chess are actually from really bad positions, like, you know, down a couple pawns against a GM, things like that. Um, and I think often it's a little bit easier to pull an upset from a bad position because your opponent's likely to, once you've equalized, not settle for that because they'll feel bad about a draw. And it's often easier to then keep going all the way to a win. Yeah, you've got some fun ones against a uh, friend of the pod and Chess Dojo's uh, Grandmaster Jesse Cry, your fellow uh, D.C. area resident. Yeah, our kids go to the same daycare. He's actually right, oh, right, right down the road. Um and I do include in the book first him beating me with an absolutely spectacular tactic the first time we played. I don't want to give the impression that I think I can normally compete with Jesse on his good days. Was that the uh, the queen sack? The queen sacrifice, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mind-blowing stuff. Uh, shout out to Jesse. <laughs> um, so, um, and what generally, now you're someone who played chess as a kid, but again, and then you went to college, um, and then it seems like around 22, obviously you've been working in chess. Um so that may have something to do with it. But at a time when a lot of people put competitive chess on the back burner, you were making significant gains. Uh, so what was going on in those years, Jeremy? So what I ended up doing is, so during college, I was almost a national master. I think I started college around 2100. And getting to national master was one of my goals. And I was University of Chicago, which is a relatively, they keep you busy there. So I was playing you know, a few tournaments a year um, and sort of making some slow progress. And I did eventually uh, get to master one summer. I think I went into the summer around 2175. And I was working, but I figured if I just like played a bunch of tournaments, uh, random kind of fluctuation was going to get me there. Right. And it eventually worked. I got up like Tried a, and true strategy. Yeah. That Labor Day weekend tournament right at the end of summer before going back right. to school. I got to like 2203. Um, and then post-college, I mostly didn't want to spend full long weekends um, playing chess, which is sort of the, the American chess tournament way is you spent, you know, five or six rounds over two or three days and you're just exhausted at the end. So I mostly played in leagues for a while, which is like the DC chess league was, you know, Friday nights once a month. And that gave me the ability to kind of really focus on one game, giving my best. Um, and I gained probably like just a hundred points from that league over a few years. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's not easy to gain 190 again, and it's 190 points, but um, for, for lower rated listeners, I can't stress enough that the difference between going from say 1200 to 1400 to going from 2200 to, to 2390 or wh whatever it was you did. So you managed to do that mostly just playing one tournament game per month. Yeah, that was pretty much how I did it for several years. And then I, uh, have a four-year-old now and right around when he was born i kind of figured a i wasn't going to be awake enough to play good uh, tournament chess and also i wasn't going to come home at you know 1 a.m on a friday night and be non-functional for the weekend and make my wife do all the you know childcare and everything so yeah at that point i kind of i pulled back from classical chess focused on blitz and writing the book and things like that yeah, and and we'll definitely get to that because again, your online game is still still impressive. Um, I mean, extremely impressive. But I I got to get more detail. There has to be more to this story, Jeremy, than than gaining two hundred points like playing once a month. Were you were you doing tactics every day? I know that you're a voracious chess reader. I'm guessing you were reading like whether it was for improvement or just out of interest. But um, what was your work like away from those? Like aside from the one game per month during that period. Sure. So I, yeah, I was reading mostly, mostly out of interest. Occasionally, if I was like trying to learn a new opening, I'd get a book on that opening. But a lot of it was just if something interesting came out, I'd get it. Um, and also a shout out to uh, Silver Knights Chess, where I was working at the time, especially when I was coaching before I got a little more on the business side. The life of a full-time chess coach gives you plenty of time to study chess because you're like busy in the morning. Maybe you teach a before school class. And then when the kids are in school, you're off. So, and there's not that much to do because all your friends are probably at their jobs. So that's a great time to like get in real chess study. Um, and then, you know, you go teach a couple classes in the afternoon or a private lesson or something. But that was an ideal job to actually provide time to study chess and really get improve. 
So you were putting in a decent amount of time. Yeah, when I when I had the, for the few years where I had that, uh, I was primarily coaching. That was sort of the ideal setup to get better at my own chess as well. Yeah, although you'll hear some coaches say like the last thing they want to do is look at chess on their <laughs> own when when they are teaching that like many hours. It, since I was teaching primarily scholastic, it almost just felt totally unrelated because yeah. there, there's very little in common between playing, you know, serious tournament chess and teaching, you know, six year olds how the pieces move. Yeah, I said the same thing on a recent podcast. I, I think it's it's a different story if you're like a grandmaster teaching masters or something. Like I could see how you might want to break, but yeah, the and yeah, the, I had I had a few talented students who were you know making great tournament progress back then, but. The majority of the time, just because the majority of the kids are beginners, you're mostly teaching beginner stuff. Yeah. Okay. And so you are doing a decent amount of chess. Um, how would you say you were regimenting your time, like uh, solving puzzles, studying openings? Um, you, you've mentioned um, both now and in, in other interviews you've done, like you think it's important to do something you in, you enjoy. So what was it that you yourself were doing? Sure. So time? my favorite way of sort of studying chess i would say is game collections just because i love sort of having there's a story involved you're like rooting hopefully you're rooting for the person who's annotating their game and you kind of get the whole how everything fits together in a way that when you're just getting a tactic or something you don't have your memory of how we got to this position and how and sort of what ideas were in your head earlier um so I really enjoy that. So like uh, the My Great Predecessors from Kasparov are perfect for that because it's high quality games, good annotations, and you get the sort of sense of how this fits in historically. Yeah, now, those books are famous for their reams of computer analysis. What's your approach to to that analysis? Do you go through it or skip it or I'll, both? If it's both. a big chunk, I'll often sort of read what I can in my head, like trying to visualize. And then if it's just if it's you know thirty moves of you know just deep here 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 here, I'll probably just give up and and keep going. Okay. And are you usually getting out a chess set for these books? Um, are you doing it on an online app, um, or are you just doing it in your head with the book in your hands? If I'm Trying to be serious, I'll get out of board and actually move the pieces. Um, nowadays, with two kids at home, it's more likely I try to get a book that has enough diagrams that I can kind of read it in bed or something. Okay. And generally, so you love game collections. You recommend the great predecessors. Uh, any other favorites you could recommend for, for different experience levels? Uh, for pretty advanced players, I basically love anything by Jonathan Rousen. Um, yeah. So... Seven Deadly Chess Sins and Chess for Zebras are the big ones. Um, if you happen to play the Grunfeld, he has a good Grunfeld book. Um, but he kind of delves into the psychology of chess um, in a way that I think is really interesting and pretty useful, actually. Um, kind of my last really big tournament um, was uh, the Washington International, I think, 2013. And it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a norm tournament. So I'm on sort of the big, the lower end of those players. And I actually, I lost three games in a row at one point in that event and was sort of worried about tilting and just, you know, flaming out. And I just sort of read some of his stuff about kind of like Zen chess playing and taking things calmly. And the next game I played a master and I just sort of absorbed his attack and just kind of went with it and won the end game and ended up finishing solidly. I think I gained like one rating point from the event. Still. Yeah. Damage control is a, it's a big skill for, for tournaments. Yeah, I lost to like twelve-year-old Sam Sevy in there. Who was okay? Yeah, it looks better in hindsight, but yeah, yeah but I don't lose to twelve-year-olds too often. <laughs> yeah, although he was probably already internet famous for uh, for that famous video with was, Greg I was, Shahadi. In my head, I was, I got a good position. I was like, I'm winning him. I'm winning him, which is what he <laughs> said. For when listeners he was who don't Jack, know, Greg Shahadi a long time ago. Yeah, if you search on YouTube, if you search like Sam Sevy and Greg Shahadi, there's this video of a young future grandmaster beating Greg and Blitz and like cavalierly drinking seven up. And for some reason, the video has millions of views. <laughs> so it's, it's a funny thing. Um, okay. And what about openings? Um, so you, it sounds like you have a sort of, um, you've had a very um, healthy approach to chess improvement from what you've said so far. I mean, a lot of people either it might sound obsessive or maybe they're sort of, um, you know, really feeling like they're putting themselves through a ringer in order to improve. But you, it seems like you're mostly enjoying it. Um, where did openings fit in for you? Um, 
so I start as as like a kid. I played a lot of like King's Gambits and just sort of E four sidelines um, up through about eighteen hundred. Um, at which point I switched over to D four basically entirely because uh, in Yermolinsky's book, the, was it the Road to Chess Improvements? Yeah, another um, class. He has just a beautiful chapter about the Queen's Gambit exchange variation. Yeah, and I just like loved that and just switched to D four basically because of that. And I found Which is funny that because you're going to get a queen's gambit like one out of seven games or something. Yeah. Um, but I found that in some ways, psychologically, just even at the club level, it's kind of nice because you play the king's gambit and your opponent like immediately tenses up and starts calculating. Whereas you play something quieter, and you, if you're a good player, you're often like winning before your opponent realizes that they're in trouble. So that's my that's my uh, hot take on closed positions in general and i've basically played d4 and c4 um almost every game since then okay and you mentioned in your chess journeys interview that you generally have an approach um where you try to learn one new move um you know basically every game you play and this is a shout out to nate solon friend of the pod he's advocated a similar approach greg shahadi has as well so um is that is that generally how you how you look at openings? Are you trying to go super deep or just a little bit at a time? Yeah, I think most of the time you can learn an opening pretty quickly. You just kind of learn, you know, get a book or an online course, and you you kind of do a crash course, learn learn the basics, ideas, and you know, if there's something really sharp, you got to learn that line so you don't just lose in the opening. And then go out and play some blitz games or some casual rapid games or something. And yeah, just learn, you know, one little piece of information from each game. What was the first? There's always going to be a first new move where you had to think for yourself and just sort of see if you got it right. Because I figure a lot of us are playing Blitz and mostly that's for fun. But if you're going to play a few Blitz games a day, why not learn just a tiny bit from each one? And that really adds up over time. Yeah, good advice. And and actually, I want to talk more about um, generally how you've adapted your game to online play. But one more follow-up um, related to classical play. It strikes me in your book that you're a good calculator, um, but it doesn't, from what you've said, it doesn't sound like you, is that something you've consciously worked on at some point? I have sometimes done uh, calculation practice, mostly just, you know, the the Agard books, for instance. All of them have pretty good tactical puzzles. I apologize if I mispronounced his name. I probably did. Um, He's like walked me through it for minutes at a time, and I still don't think I say it right. Shout out yeah. to Jakob, I apologize. But he's a great author, yeah. has great tactics. Tough one. Um, I think I'm just a little bit rarely available, or I don't know, like able to give my 100% mental energy in a way that makes doing serious tactics training worth my time. Um, not that it isn't useful. It's probably something holding me back. Maybe I'd be a GM if I had done, you know, two hours a day of tactics training for a while. Yeah, I mean, speaking of of the GM title, I mean, okay, that's that's a separate, um, you know, a separate conversation from what I'm about to ask you. But it seems like I am like it seems like you're 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 stronger than many IMs. Put it like that. I mean, I don't know if you would put like. I don't know how to define IM strength, but certainly there are there are weaker IMs than you. So, is that something that like long term, as your kids get older, does does that goal potentially bring you back to the the slow chess arena? I think that sounds interesting, but it's totally on the back burner for the moment. I kind of fantasize. Who knows if in a few years one or both kids will get into chess, and then I'll you know go to tournaments with them and kind of get back into slower chess. Um. I also, if they're not interested, I don't want to push it on them. So that'll either come or go. And, you know, it's a long uh, 18 years to they're off in college. And that'll yeah. be, so who knows? Okay. It doesn't sound like it's like a top priority for you. Yeah. All right. Well, Jeremy, I want to switch to talking about like how you've adapted your game for online play, uh, since that's how most of us are playing these days. Um, but first, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by BetterHelp.com. If you're struggling with depression, anxiety, or another mental health issue, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's professional therapy done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You can send a message to your therapist anytime. Uh, It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. You can go to their website to see lots of testimonials. Uh, If you do, please visit 
visit betterhelp.com slash chess. And if you do use that URL, you would save 10% off of your first month if you choose to sign up. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash chess. And of course, the links are in the show description as well. Our friends at Chessable.com are constantly dropping new courses to help you work on whatever aspect of your game you're interested in improving. In addition to Grandmaster Simon Williams' latest British Grand Prix attack, we have a new course coming from Super GM Linear Dominguez in February, Dominate D4 with Dominguez's Semi-Tourage. It's been super trendy at the top level. It's a tough opening to crack. If you want to work on your endgame, there is Endgame Maze 2020, which is a practical workbook with mod games and remember whatever aspect of your game you're working on with chessable you can utilize space repetition to help you remember the openings tactics or end game sequences that you learn from chessable.com and we are back so jeremy again super impressive results in blitz um what strikes me most is that your rating is still going up so (laughs) (laughs) what what is your theory how are you able to do that even when you have like a four-year-old and a baby uh keeping you up at night and keeping you busy during the day so i think part of that is that i just didn't really focus on blitz until the last few years like when if you're playing a fair number of classical games that's usually you're going to be your focus but not playing any classical chess lately I'm sort of measuring how well I'm doing by how my blitz rating is on chess.com. Um, so that's part of it. It's just a little bit more focus. And then over time, a little more specialty and kind of specializing in how in skills that work really well for blitz. So part of that, just getting more attuned to the time scramble phase and how to stack multiple pre-moves in a row, things like that. Some of its openings. Um, I've been aiming for kind of this sweet spot of, sound but a little bit rare um so that's say trampowski's um queen's gambit accepteds maybe like sidelines there um occasional just like weird things like uh if people play you know vienna game with like knight c3 g3 i'll just play like f5 and basically reverse king's gambit um so stuff that i don't play things that i think are dubious i'm not doing like stafford gambits or something but I want to know the opening better than my opponent, and I want it to be a little bit trappy if possible. So I actually have pulled back a little, say, from the English, which is a perfectly good opening, but if my opponent doesn't know it, they're probably still going to you know, only be slightly worse. Whereas something sharper, there's a good chance if they don't know it, they get in trouble right away. So you basically have designed a separate repertoire for Blitz. I mean, I guess since Blitz is all you're doing right now, it's hard to call it separate, but you've you've built up new a new repertoire. Yeah, I've built up things that I think work well for Blitz for the reasons I talked about. And also I like things that if my opponent just sort of calmly develops are going to be good for me. Um, so an example there, and actually Kostya uh, Kostovsky did a really good video on this on YouTube on... What he calls the Tromp Wall, which is basically a Stonewall setup with your bishop on g5. And it's the sort of thing where, like, there's just a kingside attack if Black just sort of sits there and puts his pieces in the center, he's going to get in trouble. Um, and it's not objectively great for White. If Black knows what he's doing, you just get some random, you know, sharp position. But it's the sort of thing that if you, if you know what your plan is and your opponent just kind of sits, you're going to get a good position. And I think that's really important in those faster time controls where no one's really going to be playing deep ideas against you. That makes sense. And do you feel like you naturally have a, a good memory? I mean, it strikes me as challenging to learn a bunch of new openings at once after all the work you doubtlessly put into your your long-term repertoires. Um, I think I have a pretty good memory, at least for chess things. But also these openings, again, they're just sort of developing over time. With you know, If you play a bunch of Blitz games and you try to improve it when something happens that you haven't seen before, you can build the, the openings pretty well, um, relatively quickly. Okay, and what's your approach to using the clock in faster uh, online chess? Like how often are you thinking about your time as compared to your opponent? Do you have rules of thumb for, um, for how long to think on a given move? So that's, yeah, the clock is obviously really important in Blitz. I mostly play, say, 3-0. So you got to be playing fast. And I think the most important thing there is if you're thinking about the clock, you're probably in trouble already. Um, so what I've noticed is 
if you want to be doing well in blitz, you have to kind of stay in practice. Like if you take a week, if I take a week off, I'm going to be a little worse for a day when I come back. Um, because the timing has to be mostly internalized. It's like, you just get a feel for how fast you need to be playing to do well. And then when you, you know, when you get down in the time scramble and you're at like, you know, 15 seconds or less or something, then you really think about just, you know, do I start just pre-moving randomly or something (laughs) to survive? Yeah. And it probably helps you that you play bullet too, right? Uh, In those situations. Yeah. um, Bullet, I try not to take as seriously because it's just so, so different from regular chess, but I don't know. I guess I have my pride. So I still try to keep my bullet rating up when I can. I think it is good practice, at least for bullets, good practice for blitz, if nothing else. Yeah. And you're like 2,700 bullet as well, right? Yeah. Pretty similar to my blitz rating. Amazing, man. I don't know how you do it. Um, <laughs> and, and I have some more follow-ups, but first it occurs to me, Jeremy, we should sort of take a step back because we often talk on the pod about like who should and shouldn't be playing blitz. <laughs> um, now you've already given good advice and I certainly echo it and that people should be doing what they enjoy first and foremost. Um, and, and I agree with that, but nonetheless, we do, I feel like have to sort of give the caveat of like, for whom blitz might be a useful to, tool, like for what experience level and for what it might not. What, what's your opinion on these questions? Sure. So I think that sorts itself out a fair bit on its own, because if someone's relatively new to chess, they're probably just going to be really frustrated by blitz. It's just going to be too hard. They can't think fast enough and they're going to just play a lot of bad moves. Um, so I think if you enjoy blitz, it's okay to play it, but it's also not a substitute for chess study. Like I know there are some more old fashioned coaches that will say like, don't play blitz. It's bad for you. And they'd rather you do something else, like go for a walk or something. <laughs> and I'm like, exercise is good. I'm not going to discourage that, but I don't think blitz or even bullet is any worse for you than, you know, playing some video game online. Right. Don't, don't confuse it with serious chess work, but also I don't think it hurts you at all. Right. And as you've said, if you are using those games as an opportunity to build out your repertoire, then especially with blitz, as opposed to bullet, then, then it, it can be useful if you again if you're learning one new move from from every game. Um, and with the learning one mo- new move from every game, because again I've been adopting that for probably over a year now, and certainly my my opening repertoire has improved. But I'm personally frustrated with how slow it improves because it often takes more than one exposure for me to remember one new move. Does that does that happen to you as well, Jeremy? Where you you know you see a new move and and you you then look it up and then you see it again and you still don't remember if it's like, you know, a month later or something. That does, and especially in Blitz, because you don't have the time to kind of refresh your memory about um have I seen this before? What's going on? You you know, it's in the opening, you're not gonna spend more than ten seconds on a move, probably. Yeah. Uh, do you have guidelines for like when to spend time on move? Like uh, Naraditsky, I've referenced before, he wrote a few great articles for chess.com about uh, how he approaches blitz chess. They're several years old, but obviously stand the the test of time. And, you know, he had rules of thumb, like I think never spend more than 15 seconds, you know, to try not to get down, down on the clock by a certain amount against your opponent. Do you, I mean, you mentioned it being sort of internalized, but do you have any, um, uh, concrete rules that you try to keep in mind for your online blitz, Jeremy? So for online blitz, I try to keep as much of it kind of internalized as possible. Like if I'm playing multiple games against the same opponent, I might realize that like this person's faster than me. I need to speed up a little bit. Um, But mostly it's just instinct for classical chess. I used to circle on my score sheet. Anytime I spent more than 10 minutes on a move, just so that after the game, I'd look back and see like, was that a good use of my time? Maybe it was really complicated. Maybe it was, but often it's like, that was a relatively straightforward decision. There weren't a lot of options and I got myself behind on the clock because of that decision. Yeah. Sounds, sounds familiar. Um, and any, uh, any blitz tilt issues for you, Jeremy? Yeah, I can tilt as much as the next person. Um, especially probably more so cause I'm often a little tired, um, and my latest solution to that is if I'm worried about it, I'll, I, I just in the last few months with the, with the second child coming, I made an alt account. Um, and that one, if, I'm, if I want to just get in a couple of games just for fun or relaxation, but I don't want to mess with my, rate, my blitz rating that I kind of associate with how well I'm doing at chess at the moment, I'll play on the alt account. And I'll also usually play some 
different openings than I'm used to, which I think psychologically helps me be just a little more okay with if I'm not playing well. Oh, that's, yeah. I think that's, that's a good solution. I, 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 uh, I, I think it's good. Now, do you have any advice you would give Jeremy for, um, online players who, uh, like a lot of, uh, you know, recent chess converts have absorbed the advice that's often given about like, if you do play blitz, it's possible to, um, develop bad habits. If you're rated, say, I don't know, below 14, 1500 online, um, so they're they're trying to play rapid games instead, maybe ten minute, maybe fifteen minute, but a, a little bit slower. Um, how would you adopt or adapt? Sorry, your general game approach advice as the time control starts to slow down a little bit, but we're not talking classical chess. Yeah, I think it's relatively similar for rapid, and I, I definitely approve if you can, you know, find good opponents and play, play rapid games. Um, I do think those are more serious, and I do play that occasionally, just to remind myself what more serious chess is like. Um, those you know, 10 or 15-minute games give you a better chance to think just a little bit in the opening and um, hopefully kind of avo- at least blunder check things, whereas Blitz, you, can't, you don't even have time to blunder check. You kind of just have to play a move and hope that it's okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um Okay, well, we're going to take one more break, Jeremy, and then we've got some um, some Patreon questions to to dive into. Listeners, our friends at aimchess.com have a fun new feature that I want to tell you about. It is called the Aim Chess Recap. If you're familiar with Spotify Wrapped, it's basically the chess version of that, your chess year in review. They have a new design to make the user experience more fun, and they tell you all kinds of stats from your, from your year, the ones you might be used to, like how you do with certain openings, certain colors against who you played the most, how many minutes you played the total year, and then some fun stuff like the total amount of smothered mates you played, the number of en passants taken, uh, all of your missed mate and ones. Okay, maybe that one's not as fun. And if you see something you want to share, you can easily share it on social media. So that's called the Aim Chess Recap. Link is in the show description. It's free to check out. And then if you do decide to subscribe to Aim Chess, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. All right, let's head back to Perpetual Chess. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back and we're just going to dive right into these questions. I actually meant to sort of sprinkle them in earlier, but um, but we've got some good chess improvement related questions. Uh, first one from friend of the pod, recent guest co-host, who I believe you know from your time in the Midwest, Jeremy, uh, Chris Wainscott. Um, and Chris asks, how has your ability to stay motivated changed over the years? As a kid, it's easy to stay focused and driven, but once work and family responsibilities creep in, that can change. And how have you dealt with that? So as we mentioned earlier, my, my kind of ability and motivation to play serious classical chess has ch- definitely changed over time. Um, when I was uh, younger, you know, in, in school and college and everything, I was playing, you know, those weekend tournaments, the same as lots where most American, you know, rated chess is. Um, and then after college, uh, college, I switched to the leagues just so I'd have a little more energy on weekends, just playing one game instead of five. And that was still serious chess. And then after uh, becoming a parent, I basically am taking a break from classical chess and focusing on blitz where you can still, you know, get those competitive juices flowing, but it's obviously much faster and you don't have to cut into, you know, time with the family. So are you able, are you making a conscious effort to eliminate distractions when you're playing blitz? Like your kids must be around some of the time. Like for me, it's like, I mean, I'll try to play in optimal conditions, but then, you know, something you you can get a text, your phone can ring, a kid can walk in the room. Like there's so many tiny little things. Do you, do you try to like, uh, cordon off some time where you can really focus even for blitz, Jeremy? Yeah. So I'll often do it as like a little break during the workday or something. So like I'll 
Uh, I think we'll talk about work a little more later, but I'll be like writing some chess puzzles or something. And that will also, that'll fry my brain if I do it nonstop all day. So I'll like take a break, play a couple blitz games and then get back to work. And that means, you know, the kids are in daycare with a nanny or things like that. So there's not too much distraction. I don't, it's, it's tough for me if I'm tr- ever try to play like when the kids are around, cause that's a, re- a recipe for kind of not playing your best chess or being your best parent. <laughs> um, so it's better, yeah. better to separate them when possible. Oh yeah. Makes sense. Um, so you just don't play at all. I mean, it's, it seems how many, like how much time a day would you say you're, you're playing blitz, Jeremy? Um, that's a good question. I don't even know for sure. Maybe about half an hour, but it's also like, it'll vary a significant amount on the day based on sort of how much time I have, um, or how awake I have, things like that. Okay. And another related to uh, being a parent, another Patreon question. This one is from David Sim. Thank you for supporting the pod, David. And David asks, he says, uh, I think most parents with young children have days where they might have some free time, but aren't feeling 100% in terms of energy and brain capacity. What have you found to be the most productive way of spending this sort of time on chess? So this might get back to your your burner account, your extra account. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So I think if you are just wanting to relax playing blitz again, maybe on the burner account, so you don't get too frustrated with your rating. Um, or, um, you know, when I'll do it, I, I'm not going to do serious tactic study or something. If I'm just going to get every puzzle wrong, cause I'm tired. So I might do, do a game collection, do some more positional exercises or even just, you know, watch, uh, there's a lot of people online who do these great game reviews now, you like uh, Kostya, Gotham, Eric Rosen. I find those all really interesting when someone's taking like their tournament you. games. Yeah, I, I actually really love it when those guys are showing you their own games um, and you get to see what a strong player is thinking. And often it's a nice rating gap. Either they're playing a grandmaster who's significantly above them or they're beating up on someone a couple hundred points below and those games with the rating gaps are a really nice way of sort of seeing how the stronger player puts their plans in action. Yeah, I love those too. And there, there is something about the sort of personal struggle, as I, I recently talked about with Kostya. Like the, I mean, it's nice when two two super GMs face off at Tata Steel, and uh, you know Daniel King or Levy or whoever your favorite. Uh, YouTube presenter makes a video about it. It's awesome to, it's an awesome way to get a little insight on the structure or the opening and see a few variations you might not have seen on your own and uh, appreciate the game, but, but you're not getting their thought process. You're not, and you know, tournament players, obviously we've all learned what's going on in our head can be so much different than what the engine says. So there's something special about seeing, like seeing someone's own thought process during a game. So yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites as well. Yeah, I really like when, and also that's something that you can only get from that person, and you know, yeah, uh, as opposed to there, you know, at the World Championship, you could get good analysis from you know probably a hundred sources for that. And actually, in the book, I tried to use a fair number of personal examples, just because I figured if I was using you know the most famous games out there, uh, a experienced chess player probably has seen half of them. Yeah, I was really impressed. You have like ICC games from like 2013. Like how how meticulous a record keeper are you, Jeremy? Basically, I just save interesting games. I even I have a, from my coaching experience, I have files dedicated, to, you know, different types of tactics or motifs, and I also just have a big one I call Cool Blitz, and just, you know, if I play an interesting game, I'll save it and might come back to it later. Yeah, so I'm sure that was helpful for writing this book. Definitely. Yeah, and and you again, you talked a bit about the process of writing the book um, in your interview on the Chess Journeys podcast. Um, and at the time, you weren't sure if you would would write another one. Do you have any uh, new new thoughts on that in the subsequent months? Um, not too much. I guess I want to see a little bit how this one does. I'm not. I wrote this largely because I I just wanted to get the writing out. I had these ideas and. I think it's good, but I want to see sort of what the reception is to know, like, is this something the chess community appreciates, uh, people self-publishing chess books? Um, Or if it kind of just goes into the void, then I know that, you know, when I write a lesson on chess.com, I can count the the thousands of people who look at it there. So if, if, 
that ends up being where all the eyeballs are. I'll, I'll mostly stick to that. And of course, I'm not going not gonna to stop the chess.com work regardless of how the book does. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you should mention chess.com. I've heard of them recently. Um, <laughs> and we're actually, I think it is time for a sponsored segment, Jeremy, known as the chess.bomb. Chess.com, of course, this is a new sponsored segment uh, for adult improver interviews in 2022. Uh, shout out to Chess.com for the support. It's much appreciated. Uh, listeners, if you uh, decide to sign up for a premium membership and use the links in the show description, uh, we will get a small kickback. But obviously, uh, I think uh, you guys, jokes aside, are very familiar with Chess.com broadly. But they have so many features that basically we just want to talk about um, a different feature that members can take advantage of each time. And uh, who better to discuss that than Jeremy? And when when I was uh, discussing what to um, what what aspect of Chess.com to promote, lessons seem like a natural fit with you you here, Jeremy, as the curriculum designer. So could you walk us through a little bit of uh, what sort of lessons are available and uh, how one can best utilize that feature? Definitely, I'd love to. So we have, at this point, just hundreds and hundreds of lessons on chess.com. And the way that it's set up is from complete beginner, you know, learning how the pieces move through, I would say, kind of an intermediate player, maybe, you know, 1,200 online rating or something. There is basically a curriculum. You go through from the beginning, you learn how the pieces move, you learn basic tactics, um, and you get a solid feel for the game. And then past, you know, roughly 1,200, we just have what we call our mastery lessons. And there, it's instead of split into a progression of do this, do that, do this, it, we assume at that point you know what you're interested in. And so you can look in openings, you can look in end games, you can look in strategy, you can look at master games. There's just a ton of stuff, and we come out with a new lesson each week um, to give you more content and more kind of new insights. Yeah. And, um, I'm, you know, I've reviewed many of them over the years. I mean, uh, obviously this is, you know, the, the library just grows and grows. So there's so much stuff in there, but I mean, you've got stuff like Fabiano Caruana going through his road to the world championship. Um, and you know, and I love the little interactive quizzes because uh, you mentioned earlier, um, the importance of active learning. And I've mentioned in the past, that's some, that's one reason, that I don't watch a lot of Twitch streams. I don't watch as much chess YouTube as some people, as I've noticed. I'm, I'm generally predisposed towards uh, more active learning when I'm reading or solving puzzles than watching videos. But the, the fact that you ask review questions uh, holds me accountable. Yeah, that's something that I think are great about the lessons is they have the videos and we try to keep them relatively short so that you'll get a break after the video to solve five puzzles related to the content you just learned and make sure you're actually learning what's going on and not just sort of using it as TV. Yeah. I mean, and again, like someone like Braden Laughlin that I interviewed, he uses it as TV, but he just watches it more than once. So it might take a few tries, but eventually the, uh, the information is going to seep in. So there are different ways to, to utilize it. So, so much stuff. And again, listeners, all will link to all this stuff in the show description. So again, jokes aside, you're probably already chess.com members, but if you're interested in checking out the premium content, uh, use the links in the description and we've got some more chess.com related questions, but this concludes the chess.bomb. All right. So Jeremy, um, we do have some questions related to your work, taking, taking advantage of the fact that you are here. Um, and, uh, Number one was uh, from Bob Weisenberg, who, who since, again, since we had someone chess.com affiliated on the show, wrote in to ask, he said, please explain the puzzle ratings on chess.com. How can the leaders have a rating of 65,385? Is there any limit? Why is the range so wildly different than, any o- than the other ratings? Thank you. So I actually had to check in with a couple people because puzzles are not my uh, area of expertise. So I talked with uh, Sam Copeland, the VP of content, and Roland Walker, the uh, director of research at chess.com. And basically what I learned was that puzzle ratings are just a completely separate pool. So there's not necessarily a reason they'd have to be the same as you know your blitz or your rapid rating. And they do tend a little bit higher. So if you're you know 1,600 uh, rapid, Probably you're getting most, but not all of the 1600 level puzzles correct. And so your puzzle rating will be a little higher. Um, and another change, which I think is just from the last couple years, is that 
it used to be that if you got a puzzle right but took a very long time, you would actually lose rating points. They wanted to encourage you to try to solve puzzles quickly. And now you do get positive rating every time you solve a puzzle correctly, even if it takes you a long time. And so it is possible for people who are just sort of very stubborn and want to not never get a question wrong to basically accomplish that and build a rating very, very high over time. If you just you know, get a couple points per puzzle and never go down, you're going to get a really good rating. As for those, you know, five-digit ratings, the people who are just way off the top end, I don't know exactly what's going on. Um, my guess is there's something a little fishy there. And I know chess.com puts a ton of resources into fair play. And probably most of those are devoted towards actual games where, you know, <laughs> yeah. where there's a loser if someone cheats. Whereas a puzzle, right. if you're cheating on puzzles, um, it affects the leaderboard, but there, there isn't really a victim there. Really got to question your life choices if you're cheating on uh, on chess.com puzzles, like, you know, for to what end, as you allude to. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Bob, thanks for supporting the pod, and I, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, basically, they're a great training tool, but it sounds like uh, best for intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivation. You shouldn't really care what anyone else thinks of your puzzle reading. Just uh, take advantage of uh, the fact that it's a way to, to drill your tactics. Um, and we had another question. This one, um, uh, we can lean on your, your background as a scholastic teacher, Jeremy. Uh, this is from Joe Oriz- Orizic. I hope I said that right, Joe. Um, and he asks, do you recommend a book or guidance for parents and teachers on how to teach chess to children? And I, uh, I did my own recon, but we'll, we'll kick it over to you first, uh, Jeremy. So yeah, one thing with chess.com is we have a chess kid, which is sort of the, the, the scholastic version of the site has some great resources, including, I think there is a classroom planner, um, which ma- they make for free, which gives you sort of a guide for a curriculum for how to teach kids on your own. Um, I know they also have adventure quest, which is this fun way of teaching, you know, the very young kids, they don't even have to do much reading for it. Um, kind of gamifies learning how to play. Um, at a slightly older level, um, I think you just want to give them opportunities. They can uh, have a curriculum or you can just kind of teach them the rules. Take them to a chess club if you can. I think having that social aspect definitely will make it more fun for them than just, you know, I know there are a lot of people who just learned the rules and then they got tired of losing to mom and dad. And so they stopped playing for several years. Um, so you want to make sure to give them a positive experience and avoid that pitfall. Yeah. So great advice there. Just to follow up on the Chess Kid curriculum, I checked in with the fun master himself. Shout out to Mike Klein. Um, and yeah, as you say, there's an online curriculum that that's available for free from Chess Kid that you can utilize. There also used to be, I mean, it used to be widely available, but Mike sent it to me to share, which is there's a, a PDF curriculum that walks you through from basically A to Z, how to teach kids from scratch. And it gives like management tips and stuff like that. So I'll put a link to that PDF in the description just so that you guys can all check that out for free. Um, I also um, always recommend Chess Steps. Um, They're great uh, wholesale curriculum and they do talk, you know, especially if you get the manuals as opposed to the workbooks, they do talk about uh, how to approach teaching children and, you know, go kind of deep on um, on. pedagogical issues and like how how to learn how kids learn and stuff like that um and then just echoing what jeremy said about making sure it's fun i'm not sure what uh what age level joe would be working with but you know when you're when you're working with the five and six-year-olds you know you have to be aware that they have a limited attention span and try to weave in as many stories and jokes as you can and uh as kids get older you still want to be entertaining obviously um but you can start to lean more on the chess itself as being the cell as opposed (laughs) to like uh really having to sort of uh you know design mini games and stuff like that but um but i hope this is helpful joe um and obviously there's many other resources so if you email me with uh more information about like what the exact circumstances are um, I can I can get back to you um, with with even more info. But the the curriculum uh, that I'll put a link to is great to have. Like when I was doing a lot of classroom programs, you know, I sort of I ended up putting it together. Like I had sort of my own thing pulled together from a thousand sources, and I think that's fairly common as you get more experienced. So it's always nice to see one more source because you might not adopt the whole thing you're going to do 
whole cloth from it, but you might get an idea or two that you can then incorporate into what you're already doing. Um, Jeremy, did you have a similar experience when you were teaching a lot of uh, beginner kids? Yeah. So when I was uh, teaching a lot of kids, I was ended up kind of writing or at least assisting the writing of a curriculum with Silver Knight's Chess. Um, and yeah, one of the keys there was writing something that not that wouldn't just be me teaching it or wouldn't just be, you know, masters or high level players teaching. We wanted to come up with something that someone who knows the rules of chess in a little bit can then go out there and there's no reason someone who uh, an enthusiastic amateur can't do a great job teaching the basics to, you know, young kids. Yeah, I think I I think it was Adam Weisbarth himself, founder of uh, Silver Knights. Shout out to Adam who yep. said that often a stronger player like in a vacuum is going to be a worse teacher. <laughs> like you're better off getting like an acting student or something who's <laughs> like, you know, uh, rated a thousand, but, but is learning ahead of the kids and is uh, engaging than, than you are necessarily getting a strong chess player. Yeah, definitely. Um, At the beginner level, the teaching skills are more, more about the teaching than about the chess. Yeah. Um, and obviously for stronger players listening, that just means you, do more conscious work on improving the the teaching aspect. Um, and actually, I'm hoping to interview someone that I think will be helpful about that in uh, in the coming months. Um, so we have one more Patreon question, and this one is uh, related to your book, Jeremy. Uh, and this is from Alex Friedman. Uh, shout out to Alex. Thanks for the support. And he asks, he says, regarding resilience in chess, since uh, it is the topic of of your book, do you think that one should never resign, Jeremy? So I have heard that advice before, and at least in a tournament context, I'm going to give a slight disagree. Um, I think, say, below a certain level, I'm just going to throw a ballpark of 1,200, but it's just an estimate. You probably shouldn't resign, because when you're a little more on the beginner side, I'm assuming your opponent is as well, and there's a decent chance that he or she is going to screw up and you'll get a stalemate or something. And even if they don't, it's sort of an inter a useful learning experience to kind of see how that conversion process works and what challenges you can give them and how they're able to finish off the win. Above that level, especially in tournament situations, there are a couple benefits to resigning if you think the game's truly hopeless, you know, below 1% chance you can save the game, something like that. Because if you're going to drag the game that you're going to lose anyway out an extra hour, you might really need that hour for catching up on food and rest and everything before your next round. Or even if you're playing a much stronger player, um, there's a bet much better chance I think they're going to analyze the game with you afterwards if you don't kind of make them feel like you're dragging things out. Yeah, although it's come up recently, and I've played a few tournaments in the past few months, and it, I, I have to echo that it feels like the the postmortem is just a dying breed, unfortunately. And th that's just, sad. That was one of my favorite parts about Over the Board Chess. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So a postmortem, of course, being going over the game with your opponent. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think in the US, like what you mentioned in the elite context where you're playing once a month and it's just one game, um, it's... Uh, I think it's it's still doable, but part of it is just the design of these tournaments. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. And as soon as the game ends, I'm thinking about like conserving energy for the next round. And I think that now that we don't, now that it's not as necessary or doesn't feel as necessary to sort of discuss the position, I think it's just it's um it's it's hard to it's hard to take the time sometimes. Yes, if you don't have time for the postmortem, that probably does mean though that you're on a time scrunch for you know eating and just getting ready for your next game. Um, so it, it's, it's a judgment call, whether it's more valuable in a, in a really hopeless position to try to get that miracle save or to get ready for your next round. Yeah. And I have to say, obviously, uh, Jonathan Korbla, who's done some work with, uh, with chess.com, uh, he's was on the pot a long time ago to, you know, espousing his uh, no resign philosophy and it, it's kind of amusing and he's got some great stories of rescuing games and I think uh, in Blitz it's relatively harmless. Yeah, in, in Blitz I don't, like, I know occasionally people will even message me and say like resign pots or whatever and I'm just like it's a Blitz game. At most if I, I'm wasting 30 seconds of your time by not resigning. You know? Yeah. Yeah, for a blitz game, it's not that big a deal. But I do think in tournament chess, I, I echo what Jeremy said, especially if you're like over twelve hundred or something. There, there just comes a point where you've got to you've got to think about your own time as well as that of uh, of your opponent. But it's ultimately a, a personal choice. Um, if you do refuse to resign, uh, the the worst is when someone won't resign and they're still taking forever. <laughs> that's like a 
that's like a double whammy. Like at least if you speed up, uh, <laughs> yeah. like, well, something I talk about in the book a little bit, um, in terms of just practical advice is you should make a decision. Um, you should either resign or you should give it full effort. There's no point in just sort of saying like, oh, I have a terrible position at move 20. It's embarrassing to lose on move 20. I'm just going to play 10 more random moves. Like that just sort of wastes everyone's time. See, I disagree. <laughs> you can you can split the baby, I say. But uh, but and in any event, um, to, to tie this up, Jeremy, there's been some great, great chess advice in here, although, but it sounds like you have a sort of... Um, renaissance man approach to chess improvement <laughs> like it's just a little a little bit from a, a wide range of uh of chess learning um you know um fields or approaches now obviously you've you've done a lot of coaching you still have a few students uh in addition to your chess.com work so what do you tell people when you get the inevitable i have seven hours a week uh how should i spend it or 10 hours let's make it 10 hours a week how should i spend it question Sure. So I think something ideal is a balance where it's, you know, 30% tactical training, 30% other studying, 40% playing and game review, something, something kind of like that. Um, but the blitz doesn't count as playing. Blitz mm. doesn't really count as playing. I'd rather they're playing at least rapid games. Um but on the other hand, I think it's it can be very sort of focused on the students um, and what they're interested in and what they're actually going to do. I don't want to. There's no point in giving someone homework if they're not going to do it. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, well, Jeremy, do you have any other parting advice? Anything you could you could tie together for our listeners? Again, I mean the your your continued chess improvement is uh, is something to behold. Um. Sure. I want to do a couple of things. First, before I forget, I want to give a shout out to uh, Ali Thompson, who's a friend of mine and actually the uh, editor and publisher of the book, because I do not know how to write books. and Or I know how to write. I don't know how to publish books. And so he was a huge help kind of editing and getting it to the finish line. Um, so thank you, Ali. In terms of this last bit of uh, chess advice, um, I know something we talk about, and this is an adult improver podcast, if I remember correctly, is that I think adults often make the mistake of being overly analytical on chess, and we're like trying to make sense of one part of the game at a time. And I think something that's easier for kids is they'll just jump in. They'll just start doing things and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And in a sense, it's a little bit like a language. If you treat it too much as... I'm going to learn how to conjugate these words and not, I'm going to just start talking and learning as I go. Uh, you're going to have a hard time making progress. Yeah, that's good advice. But I think that the reason a lot of people end up becoming very regimented is that they, they might feel stuck. Like they might feel like, uh, my current approach isn't working and I just lost because of this end game. So I'm going to work on, on end games. Um, so do you have any broad advice for people who feel like they're stuck at a, a plateau, Jeremy? Yeah. So if you're feeling stuck at a plateau, you probably need to change something and you might just need a new perspective. So um, I don't want to say just switch openings because people do that way too often. Um, but there's a good chance they get a coach or if you have a coach, just get some, don't even fire that coach necessarily, but meet with someone else, try to get, another way of looking at the game that can kind of push you past that, that, that hump. Okay. Yeah. Um, excellent advice. Um, um, okay. Well, Jeremy, uh, before we go, I did want to make a, a quick announcement for, for listeners who missed it, the famed never ending closing credits where I name all the Patreon subs. Um, it has been retired um, it just got to be too long. So I much appreciate all the Patreon subs. But what we're going to do for 2022 and going forward is uh, at the end of uh, Adult Improver episodes, um, I will uh, just give a one-time shout out to all the recent Rook level and up subs. So I just want to give a quick shout out. Thank you for uh, supporting Perpetual Chess via Patreon to Nicholas Gurley, Ben Naughton, Robert Weisenberg, Banner Chess, Buddy Thompson, Jerry Snitzelar, Ewan Gibbs, Stephen Etzel, Scott McCartney, Jeremy Fugel, Christopher Burke, Michael Hallahan, Jonathan Evans, Bryce Kujala, sorry Bryce, um, 
Jan Peter Schmidt, uh, Raiden Lardin, Sahir Abbas, Simon Binder, uh, Joseph Crawford, who is an attorney in Austin, if you're looking for an attorney, uh, Jeff Y, Renato Frick, Matt Jensen, Robert Moore, and Trond Ivan Glomstad. Um, that's a lot of names only because I haven't done this for a few months. Uh, it's, it's not often going to be that long. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you for indulging me there, Jeremy. And thank you for all of your uh, your chess improvement advice. Um, I'm hoping to... Uh, to put a, put some of this in per, in practice, especially when it comes to my blitz game, and the book is called "The Next to Last Mistake." Uh, the puzzles I would say are primarily geared towards like sixteen hundred on up, um, but there are a few easier puzzles in there, and a lot of it is a lot of the book is also sort of uh, uh, practical advice. So, um, thanks again for for your time, Jeremy, and for for sharing your insights. Thanks, Ben. It's been great being here. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.